Bill Barnwell, I just hope you brought your list that has every available quarterback in the NFL on it the way that Mike McCarthy has brought that very dossier to every important meeting these days, it turns out. Uh, Mike, with the quarterbacks that you're looking at, is it a veteran quarterback that has experience or is it be kind of all of the above of what you're thinking about for the third guy? Well, i got a list right here of every quarterback in the league, so we're just we're talking. We're just, it's a long conversation. Once we had binders of women, Pablo, now... <laughs> Somehow, we have lists of quarterbacks. Yes, Mike McCarthy, like Mitt Romney, a person who seemingly has gotten very comfortable being yelled at by more powerful people. And, and Mike McCarthy, like Mitt Romney, someone who hoped to achieve greatness just by not being somebody else. <laughs> so the Dallas Cowboys may have the ability to Google the names of every quarterback who plays in the NFL, apparently. But we here at ESPN Daily see that and we raise them. The database of information that is the brain of one Bill Barnwell. So today, ahead of week two, starting with Thursday Night Football, we access the mind of a man who is here to make you smarter about a sport whose popularity is rivaled only by its complexity. And I get extraordinarily hungry in the process. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, September 15th. And this is ESPN Daily. So, Bill, we are here to talk about quarterbacks, lists of quarterbacks, in fact. And it feels like the name's at the very top right now, given the game tonight in this AFC West Thursday Night Football showdown, are Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert. And I know that their dynamic is special. I don't know if this is Federer Nadal or if this is like Mozart Salieri. But on Sunday, Herbert did throw three touchdowns for the Chargers, basically lasering the Raiders to death, while Mahomes... Just very casually, I would say, carpet bomb the Cardinals, throwing five touchdowns himself. And so what does week one tell us about what the Chiefs are about to try to do to a pretty good Chargers defense tonight? I have to admit, there's not many uh, cross-cultural comparisons between the NFL and composers. I appreciate that we can do that here on ESPN Daily. Yes, we contain multitudes. I think the Chiefs contain multitudes, Pablo. And I don't know that the universe we saw them operate in in week one is going to look much like the universe they operate in on Thursday. Now remember, last year with the Chiefs, there was a philosophy on defense. There was a strategy against the Chiefs. It was to play two deep safeties, drop seven guys into coverage, and basically force Patrick Mahomes to try and fit a pass into the tiniest window possible. In their playoff loss to the Bengals, it got even worse. The Bengals dropped eight players into coverage and force Patrick Mahomes to find even narrower passing windows. And that did not work. Mm. Well, in week one, the Cardinals went all the way in the opposite direction and decided to blitz Patrick Mahomes at the highest rate he's ever seen during his career, more than 54% of the time for the NFL's next-gen stats. Mm. Over his NFL career so far, Mahomes has been the least blitzed quarterback in football. And when you blitz Mahomes, that means more man coverage and fewer safeties to hold up when the blitz doesn't get home. So facing the heaviest blitz packages of his entire career, Mahomes went 30 of 39 for 360 yards and five touchdowns in week one. They fake it to him. They throw left. It's cut by Hardman. Touchdown, Kansas City. A two-yard touchdown pass for Mahomes, his fifth of the game. 
Not an ideal philosophy. I think the Chargers are not going to do that. Even though they blitzed Mahomes more than anybody else in football last year, they were only blitzing him 27% of the time. That was before they added Cleo Mack, who looked great in week one, and several new defensive tackles to their front four. Brandon Staley is known as a coach who prefers to play those Vic Fangio-style two high coverages, and the Chargers played two deep safeties more than 44% of the time against Mahomes last season. And granted, they'll miss star cornerback J.C. Jackson, their big free agent signing from the offseason, who's yet to make his Chargers debut after suffering one of the many mysterious injuries that have plagued Chargers stars over the last decade, this time in ankle. But I do think we'll see something more like the defense we saw from opposing teams last year against Mahomes this upcoming week. And having had an entire offseason to cook up solutions, both in terms of personnel and in terms of scheme, to address those two high looks, we're going to see what Mahomes, Reed, and company have cooked up this Thursday. But it does feel like the Chiefs are in a comfort zone, in particular, right around the too high safety by this point. Like last year, it seemed like, okay, this is how they're going to attack Mahomes, but now Mm -hmm. he seems ready for it. And so if they're cooking up solutions, what kind of tasting menu... Is Andy Reid generating here? Well, I, I don't know that they have like molecular gastronomy answers in terms of <laughs> the variety of stuff they're going to do. Yeah, it's not like, oh, by the way, this running back is actually made of foam. <laughs> I feel like foam is the thing people always, always pick foam. on. It's just really just, we took food and made it foam is molecular gastronomy. <laughs> You're not tricking me, Alinea. Come on. <laughs> but I think they're going to make things simpler for Mahomes. They did have solutions last year, but I think the offseason gave them the opportunity to kind of reflect and and sort of think about what answers from the past they want to add to their offense. And I think it's telling that on their first three plays against the Cardinals in week one, they ran counter, one of the oldest school football concepts twice, on their first three plays. In years past, especially last year at times, the Chiefs' run game was really more of a run-pass option game where Mahomes always had the opportunity to throw the football if he had a matchup he liked or in window he thought he could fit the ball into. And that really cost the Chiefs in that loss to the Bengals. Mahomes threw an interception on one of those RPOs. Shotgun snap. Mahomes passes, deflected, and picked off. The Bengals have the ball at the 27. E.J. Hill comes away with a football. This felt more like a game on Sunday where when the Chiefs decided they wanted to run the ball, they just were going to run the ball and trust their line to block. And I think that could be something they're more comfortable doing against the Chargers than they would have been even a year ago. And on top of that, the personnel has changed. They did have Tyreek Hill to help try and unlock those two high defenses last year. But remember, they really only had two above-average receivers and a pair of stars with Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. Now, losing Tyreek Hill hurts. He's a great football player. But by adding Juju Smith-Schuster, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, drafting Sky Moore, opposing teams can't just double Hill and Kelsey and trust that the other guys aren't going to be able to beat them the way the Bengals did with those eight-man coverages last year. Teams have to stretch their coverages to try and lock up everybody. And there were so many moments in that game against the Cardinals where Mahomes had a mismatch, like Smith-Schuster against a linebacker or Kelsey against a cornerback. Mahomes is a better quarterback now than he was during his 2018 season when he won MVP. And the Chiefs commensurately are trusting him to be better in terms of decision-making and finding his best matchup than they would have three years ago. 
And so if Patrick Mahomes has the trust of his employer in a way that is impressive in year six, Bill, what has Justin Herbert earned? One game now into year three for him. Oh, the Chargers are all in on Justin Herbert. Everything they've done over the past couple of years tells us they think Justin Herbert is not just going to be a great quarterback, but is already a great quarterback in terms of how frequently he throws the football, how often they trust him on fourth down, and the decisions they've made to surround him with talent over the past couple seasons. It's been so much about just making life as easy as possible for Justin Herbert. And I think we saw kind of a dream scenario for the Chargers play out in that win over the Raiders in week one on Sunday. Go back to week 18 and that crazy fever dream of a game where we were all rooting for a tie. It's been lost in the shuffle of what happened late in that game. But one of the reasons the Raiders won is that they were able to really heat up Justin Herbert with pass pressure. Herbert was knocked down 10 times and pressured plenty in that contest. Herbert, look out from behind. Down he goes in the 21-yard line. The ball is out, but the play is over. Max Crosby. Seven sacks now for him. He'll be going. And on top of that, the Raiders added Chandler Jones to that defense. So you figure they were expecting to win this game with their pass pressure. That just didn't happen. The Raiders didn't even really get near Herbert during Sunday's game. They didn't sack him once. Herbert was knocked down three times on 34 dropbacks. Only hit once in the first half when Herbert was basically perfect. And that degree of perfection seems, in fairness, like it's by design. Yes, absolutely. This is a Chargers team that has added expensive free agents at center in free agency and used their last two first-round picks on offensive linemen. And on top of that, the Chargers did lose Keenan Allen in this game to a hamstring injury, which obviously hurts, again, part of the Charger injury magic that happens every September. Yeah. But they did bring back Mike Williams. And even though Mike Williams did not have a big game, the Chargers got effective contributions from their tight ends, from their running backs, from other players on that roster in the passing game. So having that sort of depth for your quarterback is absolutely part of the master plan for the Chargers. And so they have now, they have like the Viking appliances in their kitchen, Bill. <laughs> they have the Le Creuset. Is that how you pronounce that even? Le Creuset? Le Creuset. Yeah, they, they got the good, fancy, <laughs> expensive French stuff. Yes, they did not go out and get stuff at Ikea, Papo. They went out and got the top-of-the-line smeg stuff to put in their kitchen for Justin Herbert to cook. Yeah. And the Chiefs, on the other hand, for Andy Reid, someone who we know is fond of making a meal or two in his spare time. I don't know if Andy Reid knows about smeg, though. I feel like his degree of barbecue uh, does not necessarily reach into that kind of fanciness. Pablo, I don't know Andy Reid personally. I would bet approximately $10,000 that if you asked Andy Reid for a grill suggestion, he would have one for you in two <laughs> seconds. Yeah, Andy Reid has a list of every available grill. And Andy Reid and the Chiefs have spent plenty this offseason in terms of improving their pass rush. They brought back Frank Clark when pretty much everybody, myself included, expected them to cut the former Seahawks edge rusher. They signed another Seahawks edge rusher in Carlos Dunlap, who was effective for Seattle last season. They used one of their first-round picks on Purdue and George Karloftis. And it worked out. In week one, facing Kyler Murray, the Chiefs posted the fifth highest pressure rate of any defense. So that matchup of Chiefs pass rush versus Herbert and the Chargers pass protection might be the most important one of the game. All right, Bill, after the break, I need to ask you about which other high-profile, high-pressure matchups are going to be super important in your view this weekend. 
Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Speaking of protecting quarterbacks, Bill, we come back to Mike Romney, Mitt McCarthy, however we want to call him, <laughs> because Dak broke his throwing thumb on Sunday. And mm-hmm. Dr. Jerry Jones now says <laughs> that it feels like a three to four week absence instead of a six to eight week absence. And so what options do the Cowboys really have? It's good. We had Jerry who is not only an NFL owner, but an art collector, a doctor, a man, a man of many hats. Mm. Jerry Jones will answer this question for us. I, I think realistically, Pablo in the long term, nothing really changes. This is the third straight season. Dak has missed time with an injury. Of course, the ankle injury two years ago that cost him most of the season, a calf injury caused him to miss a game and slowed him down the second half a year ago. But even if Dr. Jerry Jones wakes up tomorrow in a bad mood and decides they have to get rid of Dak Prescott, there's just not much the Cowboys can do. They can't get mm. out of Dak's deal for cap reasons until 2024 at the earliest. And given that they need to restructure Dak's deal to create cap space next offseason, that pushes back that timeline even further. Dak Prescott no matter what happens, is not going anywhere anytime soon. So in the short term, the Cowboys are going to have to find a new solution, whether it's three, four, six, eight weeks, depending (laughs) on which medical doctor you seem to ask. Yeah, and whatever the case is, I just know that that medical doctor is going to have a giant cowboy hat on, (laughs) given the sideline on Sunday night. As we know, Pablo, Jerry Jones is a man who loves enormous things in his stadium. Scoreboard, (laughs) this guy standing on the sideline in a big cowboy hat, all par for the course in Jerry World. Mm. Right now, though, whatever time frame we're talking about, the quarterback appears to be Cooper Rush, who came in for Prescott on Sunday night. As a brief primer on Cooper Rush, I would not expect much. He's about to turn 29. He's a former undrafted free agent. He has 63 career pass attempts. He's not the backup because the Cowboys think he's going to be the next Tony Romo. He's the backup because the Cowboys were trying to save money behind their quarterback and didn't really have a better alternative available at the end of training camp. Which does feel, Bill, like given the whole, like, you know, this is the third straight season where Dak has missed time with an injury thing. It does feel like, you know, the equivalent of the man who got stabbed quote (laughs) meme where he says, what are you going to do? Stab me? It's it's fair to say that the Cowboys could have seen this coming. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Now, granted. The Cowboys are dealing with more than just an injured quarterback. They're down four offensive starters already in Prescott, Tyron Smith, who's likely out for the season, Michael Gallup, who's still recovering from a torn ACL, and James Washington, who's out for two months. My suspicion is that the Cowboys just stick with Rush or make a minor addition to their roster. Maybe they add someone like Will Greer, Chris Streveler, or Ben DiNucci. When the Cowboys lost Prescott and multiple starting offensive linemen in 2020, They didn't make a big splash. They just stuck with Andy Dalton, who was their backup at the time. Mm. Now, admittedly, Dalton was a lot better than Rush projects to be. And there is an upgrade available on the trade market, Pablo. I don't know if you've heard. Are we doing it? Are we doing this? (laughs) We're breaking the Jimmy G seal here on an ESPN (laughs) Daily appearance. 
Jimmy Garoppolo is available for trade and the 49ers kept him around just for this exact scenario where a contender might overpay to add a veteran quarterback who they can win with. Mm. Now, I have to say this, Pablo. This does not make sense for anybody involved. <laughs> Which is a bummer because I feel like every television producer had been salivating like three words into your answer. This is absolutely a dream first take scenario. Jimmy Garoppolo taking over for Dak Prescott and leading the Cowboys to the postseason. I, I, I believe that they've actually asked Stephen A to practice this scenario just so he's ready. <laughs> Stephen A is doing the Russell Wilson uh, thing where he is just giving takes to an empty stadium in the possibility that this happens. I, I'm saying that there are Jimmy Garoppolo cowboy jerseys at the seaport right now in a room somewhere ready to be worn if necessary. Papa. <laughs> now, like I said, this makes sense for nobody besides television producers. For Garoppolo, who has a no-trade clause, he would be joining a team where it would take him two, three weeks to probably get ready to learn the playbook and get comfortable in practice before he can start, at which point, according to Dr. Jones, Prescott might be ready to play. For the Cowboys, already missing multiple starters, they might think they can win games by playing defense and running the football. They did hold Tom Brady and company to 19 points, during that frustrating game on Sunday night. So yeah. that's a viable formula in the short term. And for the 49ers, who might not want to trade Jimmy Garoppolo away to an historic rival in the NFC, who didn't exactly get a great game from their offense in those terrible conditions in week one against the Bears, they might not be quite as desperate to trade Garoppolo as they would have been three or four weeks ago. So outside of first take, I don't see this one happening, but I guess stranger things have occurred in the NFL. Yeah, I do want a Stephen A. Smith quotient to be considered as an advanced metric in evaluating football decisions. <laughs> I do want value over replacement take to matter when it comes to <laughs> constructing your football team. But the other injury here, the other replacement that we got to talk about is, is yes. what happens with T.J. Watt and mm -hmm. the Steelers and him tearing mm -hmm. his peck against the Bengals while painting a masterpiece, it felt like at the time to me, Bill, just watching him be the best defensive player in the league, seemingly leading the best defense in the league. And so what does this do to the Steelers D right now? Yes. And speaking of layman doctors, TJ Watt came off the field and immediately <laughs> said, I tore my pec, which I mean, pretty impressive, frankly. I yeah, get, get that man a giant cowboy hat. <laughs> this is a really interesting one. Garstefania Bell, who does excellent work at ESPN, breaking down injuries, said what might be able to come back after rehab without surgery, and reports today have suggested that Watt does not require surgery and could come back after six to eight weeks, which sounds great. The Steelers obviously would rather have TJ Watt for the entire season, but getting him back after two months would be great. Also, and this is maybe not appropriate medical science, but I'm not a doctor. I don't have a big cowboy hat, so I can say this. The Watt family is not built of the same stuff as normal human beings <laughs> like you and I, Pablo. No. And we have one very notable exception to the track record of torn pectorals causing season-ending injuries, and it happens to be T.J. Watt's brother, J.J. Watt, who tore his pectoral muscle in midseason for the Texans. That's right. Went on IR for eight weeks, came back for practice, and forced his way back onto the field at the very end of the season. Was expected to play a few snaps, and because he's J.J. Watt and basically does not have to listen to anybody because he is a freak of nature, basically played an every down role in the playoffs, helping the Texans get to the second round of the postseason that year. 
But Bill, hold on, just to be very extra clear here about the injury prognosis. You're okay. saying that unlike with Andy Reid's preferred style of rib, oh, no. TJ Watt does not want his meat here to be falling off the bone. No, he does not. But I also think if you told TJ Watt, we could just slap some barbecue sauce on it and he'd be fine. I think he'd probably go with it and play this upcoming Sunday. Yes. And even though they're not going to have TJ Watt on Sunday and probably not for a few more weeks, it's a huge victory for the Steelers to have TJ Watt coming back at all in 2022 because this is not a very deep defense. And Mm. it's a defense that is going to have to win this team games as we saw on Sunday. Alex Highsmith, who plays across from Watt in the Pittsburgh defense, did rack up three sacks in the season opener, but it's difficult to imagine him being quite as effective without the reigning defensive player of the year drawing attention away from him. Malik Reed just joined the Steelers last month. He's likely going to be their starting outside linebacker coming up this Sunday. But when you talk about the lack of depth on defense, Bill, which is mm-hmm. a little jarring for me to hear, given how good <laughs> I consider that unit to be, what mm-hmm. are the Steelers really, as they are now at this ecstatic 1-0? Yes, Pablo, on one hand, when you win a game, you beat the AFC defending champions, you force five takeaways, that's all good. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But let's compare this to history, Pablo. When you look back over the last 20 years mm. and see what happens when a team wins the turnover battle by five takeaways, like the Steelers did on Sunday, they win a lot. They're 97-3-1 historically. Those teams win by an average <laughs> of more than 20 points. You blow oh. teams out <laughs> when you win the turnover margin by five. The Steelers did not blow out the Bengals, Pablo. No. They needed overtime. They needed a blocked extra point. They needed a missed 29-yard field goal by the swaggiest kicker in football, Evan McPherson. And that only happened because the Bengals had an injured long snapper and could not get a snap down for that 29-yard field goal attempt. The Steelers needed all of that to win the game on the final play in overtime on a field goal of their own. Pablo, that happened because the offense is bad. It is a bad offense in Pittsburgh. They scored 16 points against the Bengals on 13 possessions. And that was mostly with Najee Harris, their first-round pick at running back from a year ago, who appeared to re-aggravate the Liz Frank injury to his foot he suffered during the preseason. Harris, who apparently has a big hat, said he expects (laughs) to play this weekend, but it's unclear whether he's 100% or likely to make it through the entire game, which he did not do last week. The Steelers just do not have much at running back behind their star runner, who averaged 2.3 yards per carry while maybe struggling with his foot injury in the opener. And on top of that, Mitch Trubisky, who was making his first start. Ah, yes. We meet again, Mitch Trubisky. (laughs) His first start since leaving the Chicago Bears looked a lot like the Mitch Trubisky we all know and love. The former MVP Uh, played like an MVP. Just covered in slime. It felt like he was getting the slime off after a year in Buffalo in Cincinnati last week. He averaged just over five yards per pass attempt. That's just really about as bad as it gets for a quarterback in 2022. And the big plays he made that pushed that number to five came on a screen where he didn't do much work, a flea flicker, a free play, and a ridiculous one-handed catch from Deontay Johnson on what was admittedly a terribly thrown pass, Pablo. Mm. We will see eventually in the long term if the Steelers do turn to Kenny Pickett, their first-round pick, who looked excellent during the preseason and starts the year as Pittsburgh's backup, but nothing about Trubisky's performance on Sunday suggests he's going to be even an average quarterback in 2022. So if the Steelers, say, don't force 
five takeaways again and for the second week in a row, I don't think the offense can hold up their end of the bargain moving forward. But Bill, you know that the most important statistic of all, of course, is that Mitch Trubisky is 1-0. (laughs) That's true, Pablo. I don't know if you want to point out the Bills... Went 1-0. Mitch Trubisky, who played for the Bills last year, won his first start. Mm. Brian Dable, who was the offensive coordinator from the Bills, won his game with the Giants <laughs> and his debut as the head coach. Maybe the NFL solution is just to rub some more Bills on it. <laughs> but speaking of rubbing some Bills on it, we get to who the Steelers are playing on Sunday, the New England Patriots, after the break. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to, say, 100 bucks and below. You can also sort by category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So, what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th, and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. So if you're a Pats fan right now, Bill, I imagine your level of panic is reasonably high, right? You're about to play the Steelers. We just talked about yes. who are one and oh for all of the um, Trubisky of it all. Um, (laughs) You just lost to the Dolphins. You scored exactly seven points, Mm -hmm. which is embarrassing. And the guy who was calling the plays that led to those seven points is allegedly Matt Patricia. (laughs) And I say allegedly here because this was a fact that was reported, not declared. It was like leaked, kind of like it's an embarrassing secret that no one wanted to actually um, (laughs) let loose into the public. Pablo, who among us has attempted to be more mysterious to make up for mediocrity? (laughs) Yeah, I got to say that does explain a lot of uh, the complexity of my takes now that I think (laughs) about it. What a mess. So, So, Bill, how terrible was the New England offense really as you saw it? Okay. I mean, it was not good. And I don't want to make excuses or make it sound like they were great below the surface and just happened to look bad by scoring seven points. But... 
I will say, I think they were better than that score indicates. I would say, honestly, I think they were better than the Steelers were in their victory. Mm. For one, Patriots-Dolphins was not a fun game to watch. It was very slow-paced. The Patriots only had eight drives to work with as opposed to 13 for the Steelers. They only had two drives that failed to result in a first down. Instead, and this is a very unsatisfying answer, I have to admit, they just kind of had a bunch of drives stall out in no man's land around midfield, which yeah. at least shows that you're getting somewhere, even if you're not necessarily scoring. <laughs> what a motivational speech. <laughs> the big difference between the Patriots and the Dolphins in this game on offense, and this is my apology to two and on in advance, mm. the Patriots lost both of their fumbles, and a Mac Jones pass was intercepted in the end zone on a tip drill, while the Dolphins not only recovered both of their fumbles on offense, they had two would-be to a Tango Vailoa interceptions dropped by New England. Yeah, I'm going to remain conspicuously silent and not nod in assent as you observe that. Dropped like a hint <laughs> about the two and on conspiracy, if you ask me. Now, at the same time, even though I'm saying the Patriots were not terrible, I'm not sure anybody was good exactly. The offensive line struggled in pass protection. Left tackle Trent Brown didn't pick up a late blitzer, which resulted in a Mac Jones strip sack and a Dolphins defensive touchdown. The running back rotation averaged three and a half yards per carry, which is pretty bad. Even worse, the NFL's next-gen stats model suggested an average back would have gained more than five yards per carry behind the same blocking. Mm. And while Devontae Parker, the Patriots' new addition this offseason, played every snap and caught just one pass for nine yards, the guy he was replacing in the starting lineup was Kendrick Bourne, who only played two snaps during the loss, one of which happened to be a 41-yard catch. Given what's happened this offseason with Bourne, who was a productive player last year for the Patriots, it kind of feels like he's in Bill Belichick's doghouse. And Pablo, there are people who have been trapped in Bill Belichick's doghouse <laughs> for decades without escaping. Yeah, no, there is an entire kennel that he's running that is demanding like a local news investigation <laughs> at this point. On top of all that, Pablo, one of the players who is not yet in Bill Belichick's doghouse is starting quarterback Mac Jones, who suffered a back injury during the Dolphins' loss. It's questionable whether he'll be able to play against the Steelers in week two. And guess, I, I realize the first take alarm is going off. I have to say, mm -hmm. I'm not ready for a discussion of Jimmy Garoppolo returning to the Patriots, <laughs> for what by all accounts appears to be just everyday minor back spasms. But the Patriots did not have much of a margin for error to work with heading into the season. And it looks like they're already breaching that margin after week one. So Mac Jones is back, and, and I should be careful when I say this on an audio platform, that's Mac Jones, his back, possessive, not Mac Jones is back, but his actual <laughs> back being this degree of problem, Bill. Like, what is it, really, if it's spasmic but survivable, I guess? Well, I think they have to rely on the running game because that's what got them to the playoffs last year. In 2021, the Patriots ran the ball at the 23rd highest rate in neutral situations on early downs. When they could choose between running or passing, they chose run more often than most of the teams in football. In week one, with Jones injured for part of the game, they ran the ball even more often in those same situations. They just weren't any good at it. I believe they don't really have any choice but to be better at running the football, whether it's Jones or Brian Hoyer at quarterback. The problem is, we're not really sure what their running game is going to even look like. The Patriots spent training camp apparently shifting their offense from more power rushing concepts to zone blocking concepts under that new brand trust of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. 
It's not going great. According to Pro Football Focus, in week one, they ran outside zone three times. It gained a total of one yard. Jones <laughs> excelled at run pass options during his lone season as a starter at Alabama. But according to PFF's Doug Kide, the Patriots did not run a single RPO in week one. There's just nothing for this offense to hang their hat on or rely upon when they need a, a clutch first down or a big play. They just need to be efficient, take advantage of their opportunities, and protect the football. Not an exciting formula, but one that's worked historically. They were pretty good at it last year, but they went 0 for 3 in those categories against the Dolphins, and they can't do that again against the Steelers. So in terms of teams learning stuff about themselves and their actual realistic ambitions after a loss, mm-hmm. we talked about the Cardinals losing to the Chiefs, the Raiders losing to the Chargers at the top of the show. They both play each other now, Bill, in this nice bit of symmetry for us. Because these are two playoff teams last year that are just thirsty right now. And so in your educated estimation, Bill, who is thirstier for win number one at this point? <laughs> I, I have not measured to see who is chugging more Gatorade at the moment, mm. but I feel like they are both absolutely trying to get nutrients down because it's not going to get easy for either of these teams. They both have their own reasons to believe that as much as the game can be a must win in week two, this one might be a must win. Take the Raiders, for example. In their perspective, their early season schedule is just brutal. Yes. They already played the Chargers in week one. Now they got the Cardinals, the Titans, the Broncos, and the Chiefs before their week six bye. Now, you can make the playoffs after starting 0-2. It happens. But at 1-4, it's tougher. At 0-5, it's pretty much impossible. And granted, they might pull an upset over the Broncos or the Chiefs. Not out of the question. But this is probably their most winnable game heading into that week six bye. So if they're going to win any of these games, this might be the one to take home. And on the other hand, Pablo, Cardinals might feel like they're desperate for a victory because if we know anything about Cliff Kingsbury and the Arizona Cardinals, it's that they have to bank as many wins as possible during the first half because we know (laughs) they're going downhill and struggling once the second half of the season begins. Yes, the Cardinals have this poetic misfortune of having their head coach's first name also be the name of the thing that they fall off of every year, (laughs) right around like week eight. This is true. This is sadly, funnily in this case, but sadly, very true. Cliff Kingsbury's Cardinals are 16-8-1 during the first half of their seasons and just 8-16 afterwards, plus that blowout loss to the Rams last season. And if that was maybe a small sample, three seasons, I see you could say maybe, well, just kind of bad luck. This was also true at Texas Tech. Cliff Kingsbury's teams in college (laughs) were also much better in the first half of their seasons than they were afterwards. And I think when you think about both of these teams, the reality is for whatever strengths they have, the weaknesses you would have pegged for them heading into the season were exactly the things that popped up as problems for them in week one. And coincidentally enough, they happen to be the same problems for each of these teams. The Cardinals didn't do enough during the offseason to address their offensive line or their secondary. And hey, the Chiefs got plenty of pressure on Kyler Murray and they threw the ball all over the field against their defensive backs. And the Raiders added Devontae Adams, but didn't do enough to address their offensive line or their secondary. Mm. And the Chargers strip-sacked Derek Carr on back-to-back plays with the game on the line. And Justin Herbert had one of the best games of the week against Las Vegas' secondary. Devontae Adams was awesome. It didn't really matter all that much. And on top of all that, Pablo, we're talking about this game like it's a must-win, like it's a game later in the season. These two teams are already bogged down by injuries, which is not something you hear 
usually heading into week two. The Cardinals are without Rondell Moore, J.J. Watt, speaking of the Watt family, and Justin Pugh on Sunday, and Zach Gertz was only able to play limited snaps. The Raiders lost several defensive starters during the Chargers game, including Trevon Morick, Denzel Perryman, and Anthony Averett. Neither of these teams came into the year with much depth. This feels kind of like a December game where there's one really obvious weakness on the field, and it's about taking advantage of that player on the opposing team, but it's happening in the middle of September. So speaking of taking advantage of the player who does not belong on the field, the weakness of the opposing team to win a game. Mm-hmm. Well, we just had a game on Monday night in Seattle where that weakness was not a player. It felt oh, like no. it was just the head coach of the oh, Denver no, Broncos. Pablo. And yes, this is Russell Wilson versus Seattle. This is all of the emotion, all of the noise, all of the mess that resulted in the Seahawks somehow beating the Broncos. But just explain to me here, given how the game ended, why Nathaniel Hackett should not be considered just like the worst coach in the NFL right now. Pablo, thank you for asking. I would have had this conversation with my therapist, but (laughs) thankfully this is more appropriate for ESPN Daily. I have to talk to someone about what happened here. Please just let me indulge me. As yeah, I explain, run through this. explain what happened, Bill, so we can walk through and figure out whether I'm being too mean. Okay. How do I want to frame this? Okay. Have you ever bought something expensive and had like immediate buyer's remorse? Within yes. Seconds of buying it? Yes. Like got it in the car and just thought, what did I just do? This is absolutely what I think the Broncos felt in this moment. Just sheer panic of what have we done and are we still within the return policy? <laughs> Which sadly does not exist for NFL coaches. So no. let's set the scene, Pablo. The Broncos are down by a point to Seattle. They're facing a third and long, and Javante Williams catches a pass and runs forward for nine yards. Four-man pressure on Wilson in the pocket. Hits the check down. Here's Javante Williams. Williams running hard. Steps out of a tackle. Williams still on his feet. Running hard and down to the 46-yard line. This sets up a fourth and five from the Seattle 45-yard line. Broncos are going to go for this. 41 seconds and counting. The Broncos have three timeouts, and there's a minute and two seconds left. Now, there's maybe realistically five paths they could choose from. Mm. All of them are winnable. Some of them are better than others. I'll start with the good ones. We'll move on to the ones that are less inspiring. Now, what most teams would do here, Pablo, is just call a timeout quickly, pick their favorite play, and execute it. If you succeed, great. Hey, you're moving on. You have a first down. You're probably going to win the game. If not, it's a bummer, but you can at least get the ball back with about 10 seconds left to go and still a prayer. At least you called your best play. Another option, which I thought was logical, rush to the line and run a play quickly, which will allow the Broncos to maybe catch the Seahawks in a simple defense, try and move the ball for a first down. If they fail, again, not great, but hey, you still have three timeouts. You'll get the ball back with about 30 seconds to go. Hmm. Option three is to punt, keep your three timeouts, play defense, and try to get the ball back with a stop. Now, I don't love that, no. but at least it's plausible. Option four, we're on to the lesser options now. Option four, <laughs> walk the field goal unit onto the field, attempt a kick without using a timeout, and then if you miss, use all three of your timeouts to get the ball back. Option five, this is the worst option that you could plausibly do. Line up the offense, try to draw the Seahawks offside, call a timeout if they don't jump, and then attempt the game-winning field goal. At least you have the possible opportunity of picking up a first down and getting to move the ball that way. But wait, that's not what the Broncos did here. That is so much better, Pablo. 
than what the Broncos actually did. They somehow got the worst of all possible worlds. They huddled. They let the clock run down to the point where they weren't actually saving any time. And then, then, Pablo, they called the timeout because they weren't set. They didn't save time. They didn't pressure the Seahawks. And they still used their timeout, which all of that combined means now, if they fail on fourth down, they can't get the ball back. No matter what Nathaniel Hackett tried to do, calling timeouts with five seconds left when he knew the game was over, there was no way the Broncos were going to get the ball back. And so at this point, Bill, like watching this unfold and watching Peyton Manning just have a panic attack (laughs) in the top left corner of the Manning cast, I am now thinking that Nathaniel Hackett might actually just also be having his own panic attack. Like, I don't know what he was thinking, truly. Yeah, Pablo, when I saw what the Broncos were actually going to do, I just started screaming at my television, which is something that Eli Manning, fellow host of the Manning (laughs) cast, made me do quite a bit during his 15 years as Giants quarterback. That's right. But Daniel Hackett had time to think about what he was going to do, had the opportunity to pick the best play on his play sheet, and then used his time to kick a 64-yard field goal. (laughs) Now, at home, this might be defensible because the Broncos play in the thin air of Denver, a mile high where kicks do get a few extra yards of distance. It's easier to hit long field goals in Denver than anywhere else in the national football league. The problem is that they were not in Denver. They were on the road in Seattle, which is 175 (laughs) feet above sea level. Now, Brandon McManus has been better on long kicks on the road than he has been at home, but that's because the Broncos have let him try crazy 60-plus-yard kicks at home because there's thin air there. There's an incredible amount of selection bias here. But that is exactly what I would argue as Brandon McManus's corrupt defense attorney. It's a great (laughs) stat. Genius for Brandon McManus. Not so much for Nathaniel Hackett and the Broncos. So things are bad. The Broncos have made a terrible decision, but Pablo... Just like Brandon McManus, when you're representing him as his corrupt defense attorney, but then you'll hack it. He gets a second chance. Mm. McManus badly misses his first kick attempt. But Pete Carroll, a very generous man like myself, calls a timeout before the kick to ice Brandon McManus on this 60-plus yard field attempt. Now, uh. in real time, Pablo, Nathaniel Hackett has had two full minutes <laughs> to think about what he wants to do, look at his play sheet, and call a play. Any play. Any play is better than this field goal. Now, after the game, Pablo, Nathaniel Hackett came out and said he thought the team had a better chance of kicking a 64-yard field goal (laughs) than they did of converting a fourth and five. And this is just... Uh, It's just wrong. It's just not right, Pablo. (laughs) You're so mad. (laughs) I'm furious. Converting a third and five or a fourth and five, getting five yards of one play... That's something NFL teams do all the time. Correct. Kicking a 64-yard field goal would be one of the most spectacular kicks in the history (laughs) of the National Football League. Again, at sea level in Seattle. (laughs) Pablo, this is a man, Daniel Hackett, who saw too many fortune favors the bold ads during the playoffs last year because he sent Brandon McManus back for his second 64-plus-yard kick attempt. And it does feel like the trajectory of that ball did follow a general crypto kind of arc. Absolutely. He tried his hardest. The kick looked great for a while. It was an incredible, incredible kick. Snap, placement, kick on the way. It's got enough. It is no good. 
And it still missed the mark, like pretty much what seemingly happened with crypto. Now, mm. it's not as simple as just comparing a fourth and five versus a field goal attempt because even if the Broncos converted for a first down, they still would have needed to eventually kick a field goal, which McManus could have missed as so many kickers did this past weekend. Even with that in mind, Pablo, over the course of that entire sequence from that third down play ending to McManus missing his second kick attempt, the Broncos probably cost themselves 20% of a win by bumbling through a late game scenario. In 2022, that's about as bad as a coach can do over the course of two minutes of real time. And so I am trying to engage my empirical, rational brain here, Bill, given everything you've just yelled at me. And I do, <laughs> I do come away with the thought that like, should the Broncos just fire Nathaniel Hackett after one game? Like, oh, would gosh. that be justified? <laughs> no. As much as I was angry, and I feel better now, thank you for letting me vent, I don't mm. think the Broncos should fire Nathaniel Hackett. For one, this is a guy who has never been a head coach before. This was his first game at any level as a head coach. And that does make a difference. Coaches do get better with experience. We've seen coaches like Ron Rivera and Pat Shermer, who were absolutely terrible at this stuff early in their careers, get better as their careers have gone on. So it's not just something that you either know or you don't know. You can get better. And I expect Nathaniel Hackett will not make a mistake this bad again <laughs> over his time as a head coach. The other thing is you have to get used to what you have around. And the Broncos did trade multiple first-round picks and give their starting quarterback $243 million on a contract. <laughs> but Nathaniel Hackett might have forgotten about that in the moment. This is a man whose last job with this much power was as the offensive coordinator for the Jaguars during the Blake Bortles era. Oh, man. So maybe just right. out of sheer muscle memory, he wanted to get the ball out of his quarterback's <laughs> hands as quickly as possible, and he just happened to forget that his quarterback is Russell Wilson. Honestly, Bill, it does feel mean of me to make a let Russ cook joke. Like, I think, he, I think everybody gets it now. Pablo, if anybody in the NFL appreciated... Nathaniel Hackett taking the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands in a key moment. It must have been Pete Carroll. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Bill Barnwell, thank you for treating ESPN Daily, as you should, as your personal safe space. ESPN Daily? Let's ride. <laughs> I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and we'll ride with you tomorrow.